0: Okay, so we're picking back up with the Ramseys post John JonBenet's murder, their actions and behavior in the following days and weeks. One thing that stands out is their lack of cooperation with police. I think we noted in the last episode that they were very keen to speak to media and be on these big flashy late night shows, but they were hesitant to speak, you know, sit down and speak to police who are the ones trying to solve the case. So that's another very strange aspect. They were on Larry King, and she does these very mm. dramatic pleading. She kind of is warning the public that somebody's out there. That was actually that was the CNN interview. That was her very first
1: interview, the January first, nineteen ninety-seven, Patsy. It does appear that she she's probably taken some form of uh, anxiety medication, which you know, rightfully so. But she is kind of flubbing her words and and stating that there's a killer out there you know there's a killer on the loose and keep your babies close to you keep. Okay. keep your babies close to you there's someone out there and this truly did frighten not only the children in boulder you know this was you know children in the nation that were truly frightened that they didn't even want to sleep in their own beds
0: and it's probably a good point to remind everyone that of Patsy's, you know, history with dramatic readings, because that's sort of a weird talent, right? Was it high school and college? She would enter her pageantry as this dramatic readings? Yes,
1: she did dramatic readings. She, we didn't mention it, you've covered this though, is that she was a Miss West Virginia 1977, and she went on to compete in the Miss America pageant that year. And she actually won a talent scholarship for dramatic reading. But she was known in her pageants uh, during the talent portion. That is what she was known to do, is to read, uh, to do the readings. And uh, she she was good at writing. She had a degree in journalism. So yeah.
0: You know, my notes show that these interviews they were doing were conditional. What does that mean? Yes very conditional the police were very frustrated because they wanted
1: to solve this case and the ramses claim and still claim that they immediately came under suspicion because they always look at the parents but they just wanted it to be us from day one that is not the case let's be abundantly clear here they were under a umbrella of suspicion or suspects you know the immediately definitely prepared portrayed them as suspects because they did not cooperate with police. It was December 28th, the Boulder Police Department was informed that the Ramseys would no longer be answering any questions directly and that all questions had to go through their lawyer. And they also wanted written questions sent over. So they definitely did not cooperate with police. This is why they eventually became suspects. As far as the interviews being conditional the Ramseys kept making up their own terms to these interviews. Well, you know, we're going to interview if you give us this. And we only want to interview here. And we only want this, you know, investigator to interview us, or we want somebody from the DA's office to interview us. They were also in this time, they were given 26 pages of police reports and statements. So they wanted the police reports. They wanted copies of the ransom note, copies of the practice ransom note. They also received photographic negatives uh, of evidence that the police had. So these were all conditions that they made. Okay, and so they received these items. Okay, well, now we'll sit down with you. You know, they were afforded A lot that most U.S. citizens would not be given.
0: I mean, special treatment is so obvious here, right? They honored all of these conditions to get them to sit down when really a parent in this position would be doing anything they could to help the people who want to, you know, find the killer.
1: So that everyone is clear here. This was the district attorney's office who provided them with this information. Oh, really? Correct. Yes. The Boulder Police Department was very much against this. They did not feel supported by the district attorney's office and the, the DA's office were the one giving them these items.
0: Well, I think that's a, an important detail here because hopefully I touched upon it in some of these other chapters, but like maybe people aren't aware of the discord between those two because, you know, so many, like we have the resignation of, I forget his name, what's his name, um,
1: he resigned from Steve the case. Thomas. Steve Thomas.
0: Yeah, so these, these investigators, they had all the right intentions, but they did not feel supported. And they also felt like there was a lot of corruption inside the investigation. And he was just like, I can't be a part of this, right? Like, with clear conscience, I can't be a part of this.
1: Correct. I'm so glad that you highlighted his resignation letter, because still to this day, I read it again. And it's just, it's a very emotional read, because he poured his blood, sweat and tears into that case, as did many many of the investigators on the case and they felt like their hands were tied you know the DA's office is supposed to be working hand in hand with the police department their goal is to find the bad person and um, put them away let justice be served that was not at all the case here
0: i mean that his letter is oh my gosh it's it's heartbreaking to read and i actually had not read it until you brought him up. And when I read it, that's why I dedicated one whole post to him, because it kind of shows how much people like him poured themselves into it Mm -hmm. and had to surrender at some point because it just, I think they saw there was no justice and there was too much corruption to continue on that path. Did you touch on the DA leaking information to the Globe? I didn't touch on it, but that that did occur. Yeah. So the DA's office was
1: leaking information. According to uh, one of the journalists from the Globe, they, the DA was leaking information to that uh, tabloid. And he was also speaking very candidly to this uh, particular journalist. I don't know what self-respecting district attorney's office would do something like that, but they did. According I mean, to the, the journalists, they did. And they actually had a recording of this journalist giving all of this information to uh, members of the Boulder Police Department, but that tape uh, was essentially uh, destroyed.
0: And I mean, the Globe of all publications, mm-hmm. like New York Times, it's the Globe. The Globe. Uh, it says they would not sign off on standard search warrants or telephone records or credit card records and they also did not believe in polygraphs because that was a bit I remember that being a big thing too like the Ramseys wouldn't sit for a lie detector or any of that stuff right I remember that being a topic way back then yeah they so John
1: stated whenever Steve Thomas asked him in his first interview and let's note that their first interview with police was April 30th 1997 okay so four so, months, correct.
0: Four um, months after the murder,
1: four, yeah, four months after their daughter had been murdered, was when they had their first official interviews with police, and John Ramsey responds to Steve Thomas's question of if you know, well, what if I had one of the best FBI polygraphists in in the nation, you know, do a a polygraph on you. And John Ramsey's response was, well, I would just be insulted. You know, you guys have interviewed us enough enough to know what kind of people we are. And they spoke to the district attorney's office about, you know, possibly proceeding with doing a lie detector test. And the deputy district attorney, Pete Hofstrom, stated that they didn't believe in, in lie detector tests. And John made a statement at one point, I do believe this was in one of his interviews, that he was told, I don't know by who, but that he was told he should not take a lie detector test, because of his um, immense feelings of guilt, that it could potentially show up inconclusive, or you know, that it, it wouldn't actually be a credible lie detector test
0: okay so and again i mean this is a lot of things working in their favor with the district attorney yes and it is
1: noted you know the Ramseys have stated that they did take lie detector tests well they very well could have they did hire their own uh polygraphists so i mean in this uh, polygraphist came out and said that they eventually tested negative for deception but this Person was also asked if the Ramseys had to take a drug test prior to the administration of the test, and they did not have to. It's pretty much standard standard procedure that you have to take a drug test before having a lie detector test administered. They did not take any. Does not mean that they were under the influence of anything. I'm just saying that that is odd. But the person who said that they tested negative for the lie detector test was someone that was on the Ramsey payroll. It was incredibly difficult for the police to do their job because they did not have the support of the DA's office. And, you know, even standard procedures such as having, you know, warrants signed off for phone records and receipts, credit card receipts, they weren't signed. And Steve Thomas said that even he he was on the case for 18 months and still 18 months after he uh, 18 months after the case began, they still did not have approval to get credit card receipts, which is that's unheard of. right? And They finally did, almost a year after the murder occurred, they finally did receive approval to look at the Ramsey phone records. And what they were given was they were able to look at activity on John's cell phone and actually see the call logs from, I believe it was December 1st to December 27th of 1996. And what's very interesting is that when they were looking at the cell phone activity on John's cell phone, they noticed activity in the months of August, September, October, and November of 1996. But then when they were looking at any activity in December, all of the activity was completely gone. There was none.
0: Again, there's other instances of this sort of special treatment where they let Patsy Ramsey's sister into the house wearing the Boulder police jacket, right?
1: What I think when you and I first spoke about her sister going into the home, you were just blown away by that. That is, that's just, that's unheard of. It was the 28th of December. So it was two days after the homicide occurred. She was allowed to put on a Boulder police department jacket and walk into the home and carry out loads and loads of items from the home suitcases even duffel bags there's no way of knowing what was in these these boxes and bags and just stuffed everything in a patrol car and she was able she was there for hours And it's active
0: crime scene. Like this is an active crime crime scene. Correct. Yes. And she's removing like large quantities of items from the house. Like, it's so crazy. And so was that captured on, on TV? Like, was that, did people talk about it then?
1: I'm not certain if they did back then. It it, it would, she does appear to be a, you know, a member of the police department because she's wearing the jacket. So I'm, I'm sure that at first people just assumed that she was, you know, I only learned this through individuals that I have worked with uh, researching this case. And I was absolutely floored. I don't think that it was made. I don't think that it became public knowledge, not for quite some time, probably not until Steve Thomas mentioned it in his book. I mean, she even took their passports from the home, you know, that's just, just crazy. And I'm not certain if, you did mention this as well. I'm not certain if uh, we can't 100% say that she was the one that John was speaking to later that evening. But he did ask someone if they got his golf bag. We we would assume that it was her since she was the only one that went over to the home and was taking items from the home. But he did and make that statement.
0: Again, it's you know an odd request two days or three days after the murder to be concerned about, you know, your golf bag in the home. And you know what I keep forgetting is like this, this all happened before social media, you know, nowadays, like all of these details, you can't get away with any of it. You know, you have like these internet sleuths who pick up on everything. So back then you're depending, you know, if you see a woman going in with a Boulder police jacket, it's, you're going to take it as that it was before all of these citizens were Mm -hmm. in on solving the crime, you know? And I think we forget that it was, we were just trusting these news up, to tell us, you know, inform us yeah. about it was a different time. And maybe we can jump to some of the inconsistencies and the lies through the years that John and Patsy were caught in. Statements, stories changing. I know them saying Burke was asleep, was he awake, reading to the kids, not reading to the kids. All of those things kind of changed through yes. time, and, right? Correct. And these are they're little things, but
1: these little statements they do matter, especially when they change early on. So when the first officer arrived on the scene, and this is according to his police report, when he arrived on the scene the morning of December 26 after the 911 call had been placed, this was Rick French, Rick French's report. He stated that John Ramsey informed him that they had gotten home about 10 o'clock and that the kids were in bed about 10 30 and that later changed to them getting home at nine o'clock and everybody being in bed around 9 30. that changed it was stated another statement that was made which changed was john told officer french that john benet that he read to both of his kids, and um, and then they went to bed. So he that was his statement initially. He then later that morning told Detective Arnt that he read to Jean Binet that Patsy and Burke immediately went to bed. He read to Jean Bonnet and then tucked her in. Then it changed to Jean Binet fell asleep in the car on the way home from having dinner at their friend's the White's house. That Jean Bonnet fell asleep in the car. She did not wake up, that she was asleep the entire time, that she was she was zonked, she was out, she was very much asleep. So much so that when they got home, John got her out of the car, carries her up the steps, takes her, puts her on her bed. Patsy comes in and changes her clothing. And all the while this is occurring, Jean Benet supposedly does not wake up. This is their account. It, it's hard for me to believe that a, a six-year-old is not gonna wake up while all of this is going on, especially whenever her top and bottom is being changed. And this was a child who was wetting the bed at that time, and she wasn't made to go to the bathroom before being right. put to bed. But that is, it's very telling that they made the statement that he, that John made the statement that he read to both of his children then he only read to Jean Binet, and then no, she wasn't awake; she was asleep the entire time. So that is one of the many statements that was made that changed, along with the time that they got home. And I think I already I did mention where uh, Patsy said that she initially went to check on Jean Binet first, but then she changed her statement to say that she did not that she went down the stairs and found the ransom note, and then she went to check on Jean Binet.
0: I guess this brings us to a major theory that the Ramses really clung to. And, you know, a lot of people I think still maybe entertain it or believe, which mm-hmm. is theory, where there's is that there, I think there's one small window down in the basement and but no no sign of forced entry. They found, you know, the cobweb in the window that was undisturbed, and no footprints in the snow. Do you want to explain how that intruder theory was even allowed to like expand the way it did? Well, Lou Smith, who was hired by the
1: DA's office to investigate the murder, he is the one who invented the intruder theory. He came up with it. He said that he saw in uh, police photos. In evidence photos that the window was open and he thought, wow, you know, somebody could have gotten through that window. What's important to note about that photo that many people have seen, um, it's been widely publicized of this open window in the basement. That picture was taken later the evening of the 26th. It was not found open. And the window was actually originally stated to have uh, been found closed and unlatched early that morning. John stated that he also found it cracked open uh, and then he later changed his his story that he he found the window wide open and this was written in his his book The Other Side of Suffering. When Lou Smith said that he saw the window open in this evidence photo, he thought that that could have been a you know a point of entry for the intruder. And like you said, the cobwebs were completely undisturbed. And in the CBS documentary investigators, they tested it out to see, you know, could somebody go through this window and avoid knocking out the cobweb? So they had a, you know, a petite investigator go through the window and and then exited the window. And it was just, it was completely demolished. It's like impossible. It's impossible. Yeah. It's, there's no way that someone could have come through the window and then exited the window and not at least touched it. But it was perfectly, you know, intact. And also
0: to pick the most awkward point of entry, if you're going to break into this, like, you know, mansion, there's so many ways to enter the house. It's like to pick this completely awkward point of entry is just, I mean, it's, it's absurd, but I've heard like, so I, I did know lo- loosely about the intruder theory and the CBS documentary really kind of shredded that. But I'm sure you know about all the conspiracy theories that have surrounded this case too. I mean, I'm sent, even to this day, probably up as recent as this week, somebody will send me the picture of what looks like Elaine Maxwell in the background of a photo where John... Is it like a parade or something that John mm-hmm. Benet's... Yeah. Um, so I hear, I've heard, you know... There's like the pedophile ring theories, and you know the Ghislaine Maxwell and John Podesta kidnapped, or maybe that's Madeline McCain. But you know what I'm getting at. There is a yeah. lot of outlandish theories that people really still cling to, even now. And wh- why do you think that is? Why do you think that people go with the most outlandish and far fetched theories to explain this? Um, I think that. You know, we love
1: we lo- America loves a good conspiracy theory. You know, and I'm all for them if if there's credibility, some credibility, right. some credibility at least to then you know want to maybe research it further to say, huh, there's a little something there. You know, and I completely agree as as far as. Um, the Ghislaine Maxwell, what appears to look like Ghislaine Maxwell in, in that photo, it does look like her. And, and you know, it, it could be her.
0: Right. Um, but she did get around. She got around. So. <laughs> yes, this
1: is very true. Um, <laughs> but the you also have to look at the evidence in the case. And, and, you know, looking at the intruder theory being debunked, you have to prove that there was an intruder in the home before you can actually entertain these conspiracy theories. I think that people want I think it's I think it's two things. I think it's the people do enjoy a good conspiracy theory. And they this case, it's very hard to look at without having your emotions involved. And I think for some people that they would rather entertain something very, very far fetched occurring, than an actual more Uh, simplistic answer to the events that occurred that night. And I think that they would rather do so because it's unfathomable to even think that this homicide could have occurred by a member of the family.
0: I agree. I always refer to it as quality conspiracies. Like I I am totally willing to entertain them as long as there, oh, for sure, yeah, for right? sure. Right, it has to be there. It has to have some credibility to it. So, but I do think what you're saying is sort of that. That's an interesting point. Like maybe there's a detached aspect to entertaining the far-fetched conspiracies because the reality, you know, in in the evidence is so gruesome and and horrific to imagine that somebody in the family you know, could have done this and then stayed up in those early hours to figure out a way to hide and lie about it. And then that goes on for, you know, decades. Exactly. So, so let's get into, you know, because you did speak to Judith Phillips. Yes. And, and you can, you. I'm going to let you explain who she is and what she's like and sort of the, her take on, you know, cause she was close friends with Patsy. So she has a more intimate view on this whole thing, you know, these people involved and the story touched her directly. So what was your experience with her like, and what does she, what information did she provide you with? So, yes, I had the the privilege of getting
1: to meet with Judith and her husband, uh, Doc Miller, who's actually, he's a handwriting expert himself. And Judith was, kind enough to welcome me in, into her home and uh, agreed to meet with me. And she, Judith was friends with the Ramses. She met them when they lived in Atlanta before they moved to Boulder. And then she actually moved to Boulder with her husband. And then the Ramses moved there uh, when Access Graphics, when the headquarters for Access Graphics uh, was in Boulder. And She was a photographer. She took pictures of the family. They would go on trips together. She was very good friends with Patsy. She wasn't best friends, but she was good friends with her. And meeting with both of them, it was a very emotional meeting because at first, her husband was very protective of her. He was very guarded, rightfully so. And I spent about three hours with them. And it was truly frightening because it was the first time I had met with someone who had firsthand knowledge, who knew the family, and was deeply, deeply affected by this case. After the murder, Judith spoke to the police. She did what the circle of friends with the Ramseys were told not to do, and they were told not to speak to police. Judith decided that you know if there's anything that she could do that would would help Jean Binet get justice, that she was going to speak, and she did. And she was dropped as a friend. Um, I think it was maybe April of 1997 that she was she was removed from the circle of friends because she spoke to police. And so she shared her story with me and and her husband did as well. It was just very hard to, to hear what they've been through, the pain that they have gone through. Her daughter was so frightened whenever Patsy went on CNN and stayed, stated that, you know, there's somebody out there that her daughter had to sleep in her bed for quite some time because she was so scared. and you know, meeting with her, I definitely had a, a deeper understanding of I, what I feel was the family dynamic going on uh, in the home leading up to the murder. And she shared her theory of of what she feels occurred. Is that something you can share? Yeah. So what's her theory? Uh, Judith feels that um, that she, well, she said that she initially, I asked her, I said, did you initially think at all whenever the murder occurred, when you heard about it, did you immediately think that it was an intruder? And she said, absolutely not. She said, I I know Boulder. I did not think for one second that there was some, you know, intruder or kidnapper roaming the streets that was going to kill, you know, children. She didn't think that for a moment. She, she didn't, have an exact theory on what she thought at that time. But after the murder occurred, she saw Patsy and and Burke at one point. And after being around Burke, and his demeanor and his behavior, it was then that she she felt that he had been involved. She has stated this publicly before, but, you know, she stated it to me as well, that she feels that he he killed her accidentally and that in order to protect Burke, that John and Patsy orchestrated a cover up that night and the following morning. And she said, Burke, he was he was the apple of their eye when he was born. He he got everything. He was they just adored him and sadly when jean Bonnet was born all of the attention that she got and she because i've said you know was it all of the attention was it more of the attention you know and she said it was all of the attention that all of the attention that uh, that bert got was then transferred over to jean Bonnet. she then got all of the attention and he was kind of the odd man out that he was kind of a loner and that he was given everything a child could want, but he didn't really appear to be having much time with his parents. You know, his dad was off traveling quite a bit and Patsy was busy with Jean Benet on the, the pageant circuit. I asked her, you know, do you think, because many people have speculated that Burke is on the spectrum and i i asked her if she felt that was this something that did he seem to have behavioral problems you know through all the years that you knew him that you'd been around him or any problems at all with uh, that he just he was growing with and that uh, he she stated no that it was something that evolved over time after Jean benet had been born and that she did not see an affectionate relationship between the two of them. And she also went over the golf club incident that Patsy had mentioned to her, which many people do know about. Burke had the summer of 1994, he got angry. And this was a few, I believe a few days before or after Jean Benet's birthday that he, whacked her in the face with a golf club. There was so much force that Patsy felt the need to take her to see a plastic surgeon. And no, I think that her knowing about that incident and that her daughter had been, and that Judith Phillips' daughter had been around Burke when she would play with Jean Benet and she, and her daughter would see him have outbursts that frightened her, you know, after Judith saw his his reaction to her and his behavior after the murder. She then formed her own theory that he, he was involved.
0: Well, and I think, too, it's, um, it's very interesting to hear from a woman like her because, you know, she had such close access to them. And because mm-hmm. the way I... I talked to you and then I read a little bit about her and Patsy's relationship they were very close raising their kids together right so she was she was seeing them in all sorts of different situations and scenarios and she did feel like he could be or I mean there's proof that he had a history a tendency for violent outbursts right so she felt that way from the very beginning she felt there was something suspicious within the family is that what you're saying so she picked up
1: Yes, she did not think that there was someone roaming the streets, that there was an intruder. She thought that it was some- somehow the family was involved, but she didn't know why. She didn't know how at the time, but after her but encounter,
0: would Burke, to intu- Correct. Her yes. And so maybe you can just talk a little bit about the two kids, you know, because I think we all were also familiar with this um, version of Bonet as this, you know, like, made-up pageant queen. It kind of dominated, really, you know, the tabloids and mainstream media for all these years. But offstage, you know, I think Judith probably talked about it too, that she was a tomboy who liked riding bikes, getting dirty, running barefoot around the streets. And so it was a completely different version of what the media really latches on to. Because I know that that was the bond between them, you know, Patsy was kind of living vicariously through Jean Bonnet in these pageants, but you learned that that's not, that was not really her thing. Like she, she, I think, was it, she told Judith's daughter that they were more, the trophies were more for her mother.
1: Yes, she was, as Judith shared with me, Jean Bonnet, the way she described her was she was very much an old soul and she was very wise beyond her years. And she even knew then, uh, whenever uh, Judah's daughter asked her about, she saw the, you know, crowns and and trophies and asked her what they were for. And Jean Benet said, those are more for my mom. You know, those are really hers. And, yeah, she was. She was definitely a tomboy. And she did enjoy the pageants too, as far as the performance part goes. She did like to perform. She what was reported by i believe it was uh, her nanny was that she didn't she didn't like to compete she didn't like going down the runway she what she didn't enjoy doing that i think she enjoyed the the pageants in some sense doing it with her mom but as a former dance instructor stated that that the pageants were more patsy's thing and that jean Benet was kind of her alter ego. It was more for Patsy for sure.
0: And then as far as Burke, what do we know? I mean, the details I learned talking to you and reading more on the case. I mean, there there is it is so sad considering what he went through from, you know, his mother being sick and the fear in her possibly dying. And then her, you know, having a sister born who Kind of shifts his mother's entire focus, and I think you told me how, like his room, his ba- the basement downstairs was sort of his personal space where he would build things because he was, you know, an advanced um, scout, yeah, right? He had mm-hmm. all these. He had all these hobbies and stuff, so that was sort of his space, and it really got overtook by the trophies and all of the all of John Bonny's stuff. As far as some of these other details you know, that Judith kind of relayed and also the housekeepers who were finding the feces. I mean, there's a lot of concerning details about these behavioral problems, or I don't even know what to call them, right? I mean, how would you describe Burke as a, because in, the, in these videos, he's sort of detached and a little bit aloof yes. um, after the murder. So how would you describe him as a child, as a part of his family? I think that Burke, as much as I've kind of read
1: and researched on him, I think that it is, it is a sad situation instead of circumstances. You know, I can't imagine being the forefront of all your parents' focus and attention and, uh, you know, all of a sudden a, another child comes into the picture and that's no longer the case and how that must feel to also, like you stated, to how incredibly frightening that must be to think that you're going to lose your mom, that she's going to possibly die. And how that's just got to be so scary for a child. And, you know, he was roughly five or six when that happened. And So then it's kind of like a roller coaster of emotions, right? He thinks he's going to lose his mom and she bounces back and how exciting that is that mom's going to make it. And then as soon as she gets better, she then wants to hit the ground running and get his sister on the pageant circuit. And then she's all of a sudden spending so much time with her. In a sense, he kind of feels like he's losing his mother again, I would imagine. During Patsy's first diagnosis with cancer. It was reported that he had smeared feces on the bathroom walls and Patsy's mom asked the housekeeper to to clean that up. The housekeeper, who was working for the Ramseys at the time of the murder, she informed the police that she had found a grapefruit-sized ball of feces in Jean Benet's bed. And investigators, when they were searching Jean Benet's room after the house had been cleared and it was deemed a crime scene, they found a a pair of uh, pajama bottoms, I believe it was, that had feces in it. And they also found a box of candy that had been given to Jean Benet and it had feces smeared on it. So I don't think that Jean Benet would have done that or either of her parents. And there was only one person who had a history of smearing it on the bathroom walls. So there are definitely some behavioral problems there. But Burke was very smart. He he was a loner, but he was very smart. He was a very advanced Cub Scout. He went camper of the year in 1995 at summer camp. He also took sailing lessons every day that summer. It did appear that there was a sense of sibling rivalry, jealousy between he and his sister, or at least on his end.
0: And Judith didn't really sense that they were emotionally connected. Okay.
1: Yeah. I asked her if she saw a bond between the two of them, you know, because you do see pictures of them where they appear to be, you know, they got their arms around one another and that could have been genuine. You know, a lot of the times parents are taking pictures of their kids and you say, you know, get close and, you know, hug hug your sister, hug, hug your brother. So so I don't necessarily know, but um, by her account, she didn't see much of a of a bond.
0: No, I feel like there's a couple points we should touch on before we wrap up, and I do want to mention that at the end of this, I will direct everybody who still has questions or they want to, you know, talk about discuss this whole thing. I'm going to be sharing a link where you you will take over Q and A and you know hopefully explain some of the other aspects of this case because like i said it you know you know more than anyone it's it's so layered and intricate and there's just i mean we're just barely scratching the surface with what I we've know. discussed. this is this is it's so little <laughs> compared to
1: the the case as a whole this is simply scratching the surp- surface of everything
0: but i do want you because this is very important and this is another thing i was not aware of until I started talking to you, but the grand jury indictments that kind of went under the radar when the Alex Hunter, the DA went in front of cameras and stated that there was no evidence to bring charges against the Ramseys at that time. We were led to believe that that's what the grand jury decided. So do you want to explain how that was sort of a well, not sort of that was an, you know, that was a manipulated um version of what happened because they did vote to indict them and he went against that so i yeah i think you could probably just touch on what those charges were and how that happened
1: yes so it was alex hunter you know a a grand jury convened for 13 months and they finally uh, came to a conclusion that alex hunter went in front of cameras in the world and he stated that he his team did not have any reason to bring charges against anybody who has been looked at in the case so that you know anybody would assume hearing those words that the grand jury must not have come back with any indictment charges right i mean that's what it sounded like so that's what everyone thought that's what the public thought for years Until 2013, a reporter for the Daily Camera in Boulder, he went to court because he had it under good authority. He had been told that the grand jury did vote to indict and he went to court. Shockingly, a few of the bills were given to the public. And what we came to find out was that the grand jury did vote to indict on at least two charges that we know of. And two of those charges are for child abuse resulting in death The other two charges, note when I say two charges, there's one charge for child abuse resulting in death for Patsy and one charge for child abuse resulting in death for John. And then the same goes for the other indictment charge, which was for accessory to first degree murder. So both John and Patsy, the grand jury voted to indict both John and Patsy on those charges as well. Both of these essentially mean is that the child abuse resulting in death means that the grand jury felt that John and Patsy knew that John Bonet was in a situation or they let her be placed in a situation that could result in her death. And it was something that could have been prevented if other measures had been taken. The other indictment charge for the accessory to first degree murder was that they helped a what the theory is believed is that they helped a third person cover up the murder.
0: And that is all information that nobody was aware of at that time, right? No,
1: no. Everyone assumed that they did not vote to indict. And the thing about this is it is virtually unheard of for a district attorney not to sign off on true bills. And, you know, this grand jury met for 13 months of their life and saw so much evidence. They even Lou Smith was able to present the intruder theory to the grand jury, and they still voted to indict. You have to wonder why. You know, you have to look at James Kohler's book. If you read Foreign Faction, he had access to all of the grand jury files. His book is, in my opinion, it's it's the best one out there. Steve Thomas's book was it's incredible too. It's a phenomenal book and it it definitely lays the groundwork for the corruption that was going on in the district attorney's office at the time. But I, I very much admire and respect James Kohler's book because he did have access to the grand jury records. And they obviously saw evidence, heard evidence that made them feel like they needed to vote on at least those two charges.
0: So I know DNA is a complicated factor and has been a confusing aspect to forensics here, but you maintain, quote, this is not a DNA case. Can you explain why that is? Yes. So
1: for years now, the public has been led to believe by mainstream media, uh, mostly people who believe in the intruder theory and the Ramsey family, that DNA is ultimately going to solve this case. And unfortunately, that is not an accurate portrayal of all of the DNA evidence. Now, it is true. Yes, DNA was found in Jean Benet's underwear, that there's no disputing that. But what is not mentioned... Um, is that it's so small, this DNA, it's microscopic. There is not even a full DNA profile, they investigators don't even know where the DNA came from, meaning the source of the DNA is it, you know, skin uh, cells, blood cells, they they don't know where the DNA even came from. That's how small it is. So that means that it could have come from anywhere there could be a very very innocent explanation for the dna and in the 2016 cbs documentary investigators bought a brand new package of underwear they used swabs and wiped the underwear they sent it off to a lab and lo and behold the test results came back with dna on the underwear it is very plausible to say that the DNA in John Binet's underwear came from the manufacturer because she was wearing a pair of brand new underwear. It was, it was, they were too big for her and they were actually supposed to be a gift to her cousin. So she was wearing brand new underwear. The DNA could have come from the manufacturer. And it's so small that, like I said, there's not a full DNA profile. Also, it's important to mention that for some reason John Ramsey and intruder theorists whether they know it or not I'm I'm sure that John Ramsey knows and his son John Andrew Ramsey know that there were also five other DNA samples found at the crime scene but for some reason they only talk about the one in the underwear there were the five other samples, and this is in James Kohler's, uh, former lead investigator James Kohler's book, he talks about where the additional five samples were found. And I'll share that with you. Now, there was uh, one sample under JonBenet's, the fingernails of JonBenet on her left hand, and this was a male DNA sample. There were two samples found under the finger, her fingernails on her right hand. And this was a uh, male Sample and a female DNA sample. There was also a DNA sample uh, found on the wrist bindings, the ligatures that were on her wrist. And then there was also another sample found on the garotte. That was the device that was used to strangle Jean So that's six total DNA profiles. So, what's interesting in my question? Along with many others, is why does John Ramsey solely focus on the DNA in John Binet's underwear and not on the device that was used to strangle his daughter? Because I would want all of the DNA evidence looked at. You know, I would be bringing every bit of DNA evidence to the public asking for their help, asking for their assistance to have all of the DNA tested and looked at. And it has been tested and you know, so far hasn't matched anybody. But why is that? Why doesn't he discuss the other five samples? Is it because it's a pretty crazy theory to ask the public to believe that there, was a t- there were a total of six separate intruders who came into his home and stayed there for hours. And they didn't leave any additional forensic evidence of themselves. None. Absolutely none. Because that's a pretty crazy right. idea to think that six intruders came into the home. They somehow knew that additional family members weren't gonna be there over the holiday. They somehow knew that their dog was not there, and they all came in through this window that John believes is where the intruder came in, and they entered and exited the the window, and they didn't knock out the cobwebs. It's a pretty crazy theory. It's just interesting that he only talks about the DNA in the underwear, and one can maybe assume that he solely focuses on that particular sample because it fuels the idea that some pedophile intruder killed his child when there's actually a very simple explanation. And all of this DNA, like I said, it's not just the DNA in her underwear, it's all of the other DNA samples found. They're very very small. And the DNA that was found in her underwear, it actually barely made it into the National DNA Database. There needs to be a minimum of 10 genetic markers to go into the database. And it had nine to begin with, this particular sample. And then later, years later, it was stretched they were able to stretch out the ninth marker to ten, and then it finally went into the database. Another topic uh, about the DNA that I'll wrap up with is John Ramsey. Last year, went to CrimeCon, and he spoke and he fielded questions from the the audience. And at the end of his um his speaking segment, he. Announced that they they were debuting an online petition to push the governor of Colorado to release the DNA that the Boulder Police Department has, the sample in John Biney's underwear, and to remove it from their custody and allow it to go to an independent lab for genealogical testing. What's interesting is John, I would think, would know that they can't even do genealogical testing because there isn't a full DNA profile. There needs to be a full DNA profile, and this is required for successful genealogical testing. So there needs to be 20 markers. This particular sample only has 10. So it's insufficient. And it's also thought to be a mixture of two or more people. That's how small it is. And for some reason, John keeps pushing for this testing and I would think that he already knows that it's it's not going to yield any successful results.
0: Right. Well, I'm so glad you explained that because that was one thing I had a really hard time. I mean, I understood it after conversations with you, but it was a hard thing to put into writing. So thank you for breaking that down so succinctly. You're welcome. But I just wanted to end with what you hope because the way I kind of came to understand it is how keeping this story alive is really kind of brings profit to the you know these news outlets that kind of revive the story every year around rating sweep and stuff but and i'm going to let you answer anything that hasn't been covered here i'm going to direct everyone to you but i just want to know what you hope to accomplish with discussing this and bringing awareness to the things that you and the people you've spoken to what do you hope comes of this sure thank you ultimately i hope that she gets that
1: jean benet gets the justice that she deserves it's been almost 27 years i think that she deserves to have the truth about the circumstances surrounding her murder to come to light and i think that the people who have been accused of being involved in this homicide who the finger has been pointed at the boulder police department who have been slandered left and right for their work on the case when they actually did a pretty phenomenal job. Uh, The FBI even complimented them on their work. I think that it's just time for her to receive justice. The public needs to be educated on a great deal of the evidence that they don't know about. So I would just highly encourage that they read both of the lead investigators books On this case, watch the CBS documentary, read Anne uh, Louise Bardach's Vanity Fair article because it was phenomenal, as you as you know. And just do some digging. It's hard to do because there's so many circumstances in this case that point in other directions, but it all leads back to one thing. And I will cover this on my my page about the ransom note because that is the biggest piece of evidence, and it
0: it points to one person who wrote it. Right. Okay. Well, thank you so much for everything that you've exposed and informed me on. I have, you know, a new um, knowledge of the case and I hope that everyone listening does too.
1: Thank you so much. I, I greatly, greatly appreciate it.
0: And like I said, I'll link everybody over to you and you can share um, reference points and all, all of the missed um, topics that we didn't get to today. All right, that sounds great. Thank you.